You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Into our new series. We're naming this new series Within a Yard of Hell. Um, most of you have been with us long enough. You know that's part of our mission statement. I'm going to dive into that more here in a little bit. Um, our full mission statement says that uh, we want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. And then we would say that we want to do that by proclaiming the gospel, planting disciples, training leaders, multiplying missionaries. And uh, as, I, as I was praying through and thinking about this series, we think it's going to be about five or six weeks long. We're going to dive into some of the key passages and core passages that were kind of foundational for us when we started, as well as really dive into our mission statement itself, our vision statement, our values, some goals. We just really want to uh, lay that out before the rest of the church family and say, join us in growing in this and investing in this and participating in this even more so as the years go on. So to that end, we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 4. If you would stand with me, I'm actually going to read from three different passages of Scripture. And if you're unable to follow along with me or turn as fast as I do in your Bibles, um, it's okay. We're going to be in Matthew 4, then we're going to be in Matthew 16, and then we're going to be in Matthew 28. I'm going to read some of those snippets. They'll also be on the screen in front of you. So Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, says this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, and I love that word, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Turn with me now to Matthew 16, a few pages over to the right. Matthew 16, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 18, beginning in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Turn with me now to Matthew 28. And we will be in verses 18 through 20. I'm going to begin in verse 16. It's not on the screen. I'm going to begin in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples, this is after Jesus was crucified and then resurrected, right? Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. I want to pray quick. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, you have promised that when your word is spoken, when your word is preached, that it will go forth, that it will accomplish exactly what you intended it to accomplish. And Lord, we know that at your word, dead things come to life. 
specifically dead hearts come to life. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would do just that, that you would come and shine your living word into places of our hearts that have been darkened, maybe even dead, or maybe holding on by a thread, and that you would speak life into those places, that you would renew us and restore us and draw us to yourself. I trust you to do this work. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. August 6th, 2012. Might write that down. August 6th, 2012. Nearly 10 years ago. It was a historic day for us here at the well. Um, on that day, August 6, 2012, was the day that Christy and I and four other people began planting the well. That was the date. Back then, we had no church name, we had no bylaws, we had no money, had no leadership structure, didn't have a building, didn't have any idea where we would be the next few months. Um, what we did have is the three passages of Scripture that I just read to you. We also had a very simple mission statement tattooed on my arm. And it read, running a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Now, by God's grace, that mission statement stuck, and it really continues to be our mission statement today. Um, back then, and I think still today, um, Christy and I uh, simply believed um, that when Jesus called the two of us to follow Jesus, to fish for men and women, to um, assault the gates of hell, uh, to make disciples, um, we had this weird belief that between the two of us and these other four people that we met with in those earlier days, that somehow God was going to build and, and plant this church, and, and He was going to do miraculous things, and that He would draw around other disciples around us that would be on the exact same mission as we are. That's what we have believed all these years. When we began with that small group of six, you know, lovingly over the years called that group the Core Six, um, when we began with those three passages, that group of six people, that mission statement, um, it's interesting because that mission statement still raises eyebrows with people. They're like, what? That's your, that's your mission statement? Explain that to me. How, how does that work out? Um, I, I think since then, what, what we've witnessed and experienced is that God has um, slowly... Um, sometimes very painfully um, grown this church into uh, nearly 120 people. There's not that many in this room um, today, but um, if everybody showed up that calls this their church home, if everybody showed up on one Sunday, we would have 120 of us in this room. Um, what began as a, what I'd like to call a kind of a theoretical pipe dream um, and a tattoo on my arm, morphed into the church that we all make up today. 
Um, another way you could say it is uh, what, what began as a backyard pipe dream in a garage full of cigar smoke, because that's where we started. Um, laughter, lots of laughter. I remember that. Lots of laughter in that garage. There was a time where people would say, we're, we're going to Joe's garage, <laughs> and that indicated that a lot of ministry was going to take place. Um, all of that, though, morphed into this today. All of us in this room, those who aren't here today with us, um, gathering on a weekly basis, south side of the tracks in Hastings. I mean, it's, a, it's a really, it's a wild journey. would make for an interesting book someday. I think. It's fascinating to uh, think about the now nearly 10 years that have passed by, though. Uh, For those of you that have been around for a while, um, a lot's taken place. The reality of those now nearly 10 years is what, what started as theory became practice. Theory got tested, too. Uh, dreams, you might say it that way. Those dreams of those earlier days uh, came face to face with the stark cold reality of what a yard from hell actually means. Um, many of you, along with us, uh, have become, over the last number of years, practitioners of the mission that we're called to. And sometimes, like I said, sometimes that's in really painful ways, and other times, that's in some really beautiful ways, too. Um, I, you know, we often marvel, Christy and I do, and I think many of you, as we've, we've had conversations over the years, we, we marvel at the sheer emotional, um, a relational and spiritual toll that a commitment to this kind of mission brings along with it, right? Like, when you commit yourself to running a rescue mission within a yard of hell, that's going to be the existence of your life. When you commit to that, not just a tattoo on an arm or a sticker on your shirt, when you commit to that, you witness some of the darkest, most twisted perversions in this world simultaneously alongside with some of the most awe-inspiring evidences of God's grace and power and provision. That's what you get a front row seat to. Commit yourself to rescuing lost souls within a yard of hell. And you gain a front row seat to some of the darkest things you've ever seen as well as some of the most transformative, gracious things you've ever seen at the same time. And, uh, you know, I I think maybe almost on a daily basis, um, I've wondered, Christy and I have talked about this a number of times, I wondered what kind of screws have got to be loose in our heads. Um, If any of you have committed to this mission statement and made it part of your life, you've asked that question a few times. What kind of screws do I have loose inside my head to continue doing what we do? I mean, why not just go start some really cushy little church program, some little VBS thing that we can go run, be done, give ourselves a pat on the back, you know, at the end. Um... Something a little bit more traditional, a little bit more American maybe, um, rather than doing what we're doing. Uh, But to be honest with you, the way that when I think about that, like there must be some screws loose. Couldn't I just go maybe pastor a church that's been existing for like 100 years already and 
Maybe I could. I don't know. I just know that if it was anything other than running a rescue mission within a yard of hell, I think it would feel like child's play to me. And I don't say that to be arrogant about anything. It's just I, I know what God's called me to. And so when I think about the possibility of doing something else with less oomph, maybe, or less edge, I feel like, man, that would, that would be child's play. I think I would fall asleep. It would be boring. The picture for me in my mind is a picture of guys who come back from war, right? And they come back from war, and they've been there, and they've had bullets fly over their heads, and they come back here to America, and they go, this doesn't feel right. And they go through changes. That's the difference that I see in my mind. And I think some of you have experienced that as well. I also think this is the reason that this dude, C.T. Studd, if you never heard of C.T. Studd, he's the famous missionary, pastor, church planter. Uh, he ministered in China, India, and Africa, uh, I think back in the later 18 to early 1900s. Um, C.T. Studd is actually the one who made this statement, running a rescue mission within a yard of hell. It's not original with us. I just ripped it off from him. I read it in a book. I never honestly did much study on C.T. Studd's life. I've just always said, dude must have been a real studly man. That was always my statement about him. The full statement that he actually says is this. He says that some people want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. Do you understand what he's saying? Some people want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. Comfy. Cush. Safe. Second half, he says, I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And by God's grace, that's what Mr. Stud did. Again, I think he was a pretty studly man. But here's some other things he said. I, this last week, um, began to study his life a little bit because I thought, you know, almost 10 years in, been ripping this dude's statement off for years. Hey, man, I'll find out who he is, you know. Um, and so I started reading some of his stuff. And I'll just, I'll tell you, it's a fascinating story. Um, fascinating life story. Um, this dude wrote some poetry that'll knock your socks off. And you look at me and you go, poetry? Joe, reading poetry? Yeah, I read poetry. This guy writes some really good poetry. I would encourage you to read anything by C.T. Studd at this point. Good stuff. I, I want to read a couple of quotes to you. Uh, man had a way with words. Um, here's one. He said, true religion is like smallpox. If you get it, you give it to others and it spreads. <laughs> True religion is like smallpox. If you get it, you give it to others and it spreads. One of his more famous statements, he says this, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Think about the impact of that. Here's another one. I love this one too. Let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Here's the best part. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets the news of our departure from the field of battle. Yes! If that doesn't make you want to run through walls, it takes the passivity out of just coming and sitting in a gathering, doesn't it? takes this idea of the spectator sport of American Christianity and turns it back into a, a war zone that we 
should rightly see ourselves in. Last statement I have from him that I thought was really good and struck me quite personally when I read it. He said the romance, or the romantic picture, the romance of a missionary is often made up of monotony and drudgery. In other words, when you think about what it means to be a missionary, you think how splendid, how glorious, right? He's saying no. The real picture of what it means to be a missionary is that it's monotony and it's drudgery, oftentimes boring and oftentimes harder than you could ever think it would be, right? He says there is often no glamour in it. It doesn't stir a man's spirit or blood. Then he says this, don't come out to be a missionary as an experiment. It would be useless and dangerous for you. Only come if you feel you would rather die than not come. Don't come if you want to make a great name or if you want to live for a long time. Come to the mission field if you feel there is no greater honor after living for Christ than to die for him. I have one other statement in my head that um, I read by him that just flattened me when I read it. And I can't get away from it. And I'm going to butcher it, but you can look it up. Because I think sometimes what might be easy for us to think is, well, that missionary, C.T. Studd, to Africa, India, China, he's a very unique man, right? Um, that's, he's not really a pastor. No, he was a pastor. Um, he reached um, the chief of a, a cannibal tribe, trained that man to be the pastor, and between the two of them, they pastored a church of 500, trained up more missionaries and sent them out. C.T. Studd did not see the church as a building that we all gather in to get fed and feel cozy. C.T. Studd saw the church as a place that you come to get equipped as missionaries, as military soldiers to be sent back out into the culture like it's a war zone. That's the way C.T. Studd saw it, and I basically agree with him. Well, the other thing that he said, the statement that I can't get out of my head is this, and it's harsh, so brace yourselves. He said, I have no desire whatsoever to feed fat little Christian sheep who won't get off their butts and go reach their neighbors. Now you can look it up. I read that and I thought, yeah, that's, that's me. That's where I'm at. Um, I, I think the last thing that I want to do or have ever felt called to do was to entertain people. Uh, I know I can be pretty entertaining at times. <laughs> I've never felt that calling. Um, I've always believed that God had called us to plant a church here that would run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. Not pander or cater to anything but that. There's plenty of other churches in town. Uh, there's plenty of other churches in this region that uh, run their ministry quite a bit different. Um, but by God's grace, here we are today. Uh, many of you in this room and others who are not here this morning who I think, by and large, are headed the same direction. Suffice it to say, I have benefited personally from the ministry of C.T. Studd and his mission statement, his pull-no-punches way of speaking and the things that he has said, his poetry especially. But it was that statement that came from that man, ironically enough, now 10 years later I'm looking into his life and going, oh, I think I get it, Lord, you and your sovereignty uh, made that happen. That statement, 
along with those three passages that I read, were basically all we had in our hands when we sat down nearly ten years ago with four other people, a total of six of us. Now, almost ten years later, I ask this question, what does it mean? Like, what, is it, what does it actually mean to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell? Because it's a broad statement. So, uh, you, know, a, you know, you give me 100 people, and 100 people would answer that question differently, right? Um, but for us, there's some meaning behind that. And I want to help to kind of unpack some of that. I also want to ask, what would it look like if more people committed their lives to a, to a statement like that? If it wasn't just, hey, I came to the well, and the well's a great place for me. I really love being here because the lights are great, or I love the way Donnie does liturgy, or the way Joe you know, gets all spitty and sputtery and, and makes us laugh. What would it be like if people, more people, just latched a hold of this statement and said, this is what I'm doing with my life. That, that my life is more than gathering on a Sunday and then living a certain way until the next Sunday and then gathering again. What would it look like if the in-between those Sundays was a big, massive mob of people who said, this is my mission statement? Now, I'm not asking everybody to get tattoos tomorrow. That's, that's not what I'm asking people to do. I'm asking us to think deeply about where each of us is at in terms of this mission statement and these passages. Now, those two questions, what does it mean? What does it mean and what would it look like? I think the simple answer is one word, commissioned. You think about this word, commissioned. Uh, the word commissioned basically means sent together. You might write that down. <coughs> it means sent together, commissioned. It, when you read the word commissioned and you find the different instances of its use, it feels a bit militant. Like when a commander sends a team with his own authority to accomplish something on his behalf. That's what it means. That's the feeling. That's the oomph behind the word commissioned. And for our purposes, this is what I would say. I would say that a church like us, a church like the well, if we are running a rescue mission within, now, uh, you know, Abe made this really good point earlier. Is it in the yard of hell? Or is it a yard from hell? So just to clarify, no, it's not in the yard of hell, although within a yard of hell, a yard from the edge of hell will oftentimes feel like hell. Okay? Because you're close to the edge. It takes a lot of wisdom to do this together. Shouldn't go there alone. One of the things I would say. Um... Here, here, here's, here's what that would look like. If we are running a rescue mission within a yard of hell, if that's you and you say, I buy into that, I'm getting a tattoo. No, you're not. No. Well, maybe you are. I should say this. I have no bones about this. I've told this story often. There are only two other guys that have that tattoo on their arm. There were two of the guys that were with us when we started, and they're no longer with us. One of them's sitting in prison. The other one I don't think is following the Lord. I could be wrong. I don't know what the Lord has planned for those two men's lives. That tattoo exists in it like that on two other dudes. So I think there's a very serious thing about that mission statement. I really do. Um, 
for our purposes, we would say somebody that's running that rescue mission, um, they would be fishers of men and women. Question, are you a fisher of men and women? If not, my question is, why not? Um, if you're running that rescue mission, I think that you would be somebody who would assault the gates of hell. Uh, you would be somebody who makes disciples, who makes disciples in what Lecrae calls disciple cycles. And if your answer to those is, no, that's really not me, my question is, why not, and are you a Christian? I have no problems asking that question. Let's think about these three things together. Number one, commissioned to fish for men and women. Matthew 4, right? In that passage, Jesus is out and about. What's he doing in that passage? He's out and about preaching the message of repentance. What does that mean? Uh, that means that he's simply calling people to turn away from living in sin. He's calling them to turn away from that, to then turn to God and submit to God as both Savior and King, which is popular in America and popular in evangelism to call people to your Lord and Savior, right? We do a big emphasis on Savior. Come to Jesus. He loves you. He will save you. Pray this prayer. He shed his blood for you. You can be saved from the flames of hell. But then we forget this part of the Lord and King. He must be Lord and King of your life as well, or he most likely is not your Savior. So, that's what Jesus is doing. He's preaching that message of repentance. And as he's preaching, what happens? He comes across a couple of really stinky fishermen. Uh, if you've ever gone fishing, and you've ever used stink bait, or even worms for that matter, and caught a fish and got it in your hands, and it's slipping and sliding around, and you're trying to kiss it, which most of us do, right? At any rate, you know, you're sweating. You're sweating, and it's hot out, usually. Um... By the time you get done with a day of fishing, suffice it to say, you don't smell that good. These men didn't smell that good. And Jesus finds these fishermen. He calls them to come follow him so that he can make them into fishers of men. It's his first calling of disciples. Come follow me. Not to this great church with all of its great accoutrements, right? Come follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And what did they do? Well, they said, Jesus, about three months from now, I'll be done. They didn't do that, did they? I mean, that, 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 those, that was their job. That was their paychecks they walked away from. I don't know how much you make a week, but I just want you to get that number. Or how much you make annually. How much is that? You don't have to tell me. Just get it in your head for a minute. And Jesus didn't say, come follow me, I'll make you wealthy. Come follow me, I'll make you famous. He said, come follow me, I'll make you into fishers of men. No promise of a paycheck, no promise of safety, no promise of a place to live, no promise of anything except for I will make you fishers of men. And immediately, immediately, they left their nets behind and began following him. I am convinced that every time I've sat in front of somebody and said, hey, husband, you're abusing your wife. You know what you need to do? Love your wife immediately. And when I say things like that, the reason that they bail is because they have no intention on immediately serving God or loving their wife. I could couch that story a thousand different times in a row. Whether it be the drug 
or the porn, or the drink, or the gossip. When I say, you know, you ought to stop doing that and just become a fisher of men and women, I'm out. It's a hard call. And these guys left it all immediately. In the Italian mafia culture, which you guys know, most of you, I'm a big fan of because I'm Italian, and my great-grandfather worked somewhere in the mob um, Italian mafia culture, there's a concept of something called the made man. Ever heard this? The made man. A made man is someone who has been selected. You, come here. He's been trained. You, get trained. Do this, don't do that. He's been formally installed. You are now a leader in our organization. And then he has been sent out on behalf of that family um, by his local crime boss to accomplish the mission of that family in that region. I don't know if any of you ever watched mob movies with that thought in mind, but that's what's taking place. In this same way, Jesus, Jesus himself is the boss, right? He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He makes men and women into fishers of other men and women. Why? So that the rule and the reign of the kingdom can be extended across the earth. You and I exist for nothing else other than to extend the presence, the rule and the reign of the king across the earth. And the crazy thing is he doesn't even need you and I to do it. He can do this on his own. But he chooses to have you and I be a part of that. That's such a privilege. You know, when you get down to the privilege of this calling that God has on our lives to be commissioned to make fishers of men and women, I'll tell you the petty little arguments over carpet colors and wall colors and building stuff um, or just the fact that oh i can't believe he said that he hurt my feelings all those crazy little oh did you see his daughter do this and that all the little gossip meandering that happens inside the church family that but quite honestly doesn't bring any glory to god but just turns off the onlooking family the onlooking world around all that goes away when you realize god in his sovereignty chose you <laughs> he chose you to be a part of that mission of extending his reign his rule to the ends of the earth. It's humbling. It's humbling. If it doesn't humble you, you should be asking some questions about what's going on inside of your heart right now, right? So our job, I think, when you hear this, our job is to respond to this calling. It's to respond to this commission Immediately, not two weeks from now, not two hours from now, not two months from now, not two years from now. Immediately, by leaving anything behind that would hinder you from obeying your king. See, for some people, what does this mean? For some people, this means you relocate to another country. You just pick up and you go. C.T. Studd said he stood in front of a committee of three multiple times. He, he, he cusses. He doesn't cuss. Well, kind of. Now, I don't, maybe he did. I don't know. He kind of cursed out um, committees of three because they would call him to come and stand in front of them and ask for money, and then they would turn him down for some crazy bogus reason, like, well, I don't really like the way you have your beard. Um, weird things. And so he just, like, he just goes, you know what? I don't need those stupid little committees of three to give me any money. God called me. I'm going, and guess what? He went. That dude did massive ministry. I wish, I wish for an entire church of people that had that same audacity. Not arrogance, but audacity to say, 
I serve the king of kings. <laughs> you ain't stopping me. I serve the king of kings, and I'm going to love you. I serve the king of kings, and I'm going to share the gospel with you for no matter how long it takes. I serve the king of kings, and this is not about me. It's about helping you meet my king. That's the envisionment that I have. I don't know if it can be done here in America. I don't know if that kind of church can be planted and sustained. I really don't know. This is what I do know. I do know that I serve the king of kings who left a tomb empty. He can do anything he wants. And I believe that's what he's called me to. My hope is that he's called you to that too. For some people it means uprooting, moving to a different country. Others means just simply seeing your normal circle of influence as an opportunity to share Jesus with others instead of just opportunities to make a wager and enjoy a hobby. It's a reorientation of your life to see yourself as a sent missionary. Second, uh, we're called commissioned to assault the gates of hell, right? From Matthew 16. Now, oftentimes I think when someone becomes a Christian, they become an instant Christian consumer. Uh, they begin to consume this Christian lifestyle. Uh, all the trinkets that uh, come with it, the coffee cups and the t-shirts. I, I got a whole tub of them and I love to wear them, right? You know, part of my Christian consumer experiences is I got tattoos of passages of scripture all over myself. And you're all like, eh, I know, <laughs> it's weird. I don't think it's weird. <laughs> it's okay. We become consumers. And I think if we're not careful uh, what can easily happen is we begin to miss the fact that believers are also called to be soldiers in a spiritual battle for the souls of others who are still living within a yard of hell. That's what we're called to, right? Like those who truly come to know the king of the kingdom, like Peter in Matthew 16, are able to say along with Peter, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And in those moments find, just like Peter, marching orders to assault the gates of hell for the salvation of lost souls. That's what Peter did. He was a changed, radically changed man after the resurrection. Radically changed. Went from a, a wussy who ran off and denied Christ three times to a man who unashamedly and, and unfearfully shared the gospel all over the place until they crucified him upside down. That's the picture of a disciple, far different from the picture that we have in American Christianity, where we must have the lights right, and we must have the seats right, and we must have the, 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 the structure of the service just right, and we must have programs for their kids, and we must, at the end of the day, that's not the right picture. We've taken this thing from the scriptures, and we've turned it upside down and made it into something that it's not. We wonder why it's hard to build churches of people that are more than just spectators and gossipers. We wonder why it's hard to build a church of missionaries that would see themselves as sent to assault the gates of hell. And that's the promise in Matthew 16. As Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail. Oftentimes people read that and they go, oh, the gates of hell are assaulting me. I need to watch out. No. That's not the picture. Gates don't assault anybody. Gates just stand there. Our job is to be a battering ram and assault the gates of hell. Here's the reality. Hell ain't got nothing on the church of the resurrected Christ. 
Hell ain't got nothing on the Church of the Resurrected Christ. I stood in a park a few months ago and got my life threatened for wanting to build a ministry that would share the gospel into some of the most unreached areas of our city. Stop, desist, don't come here anymore, or else we will come to your house. I was scared. And I looked at this man and I said, you know, I think I'm going to have to decide whether I fear you more than I fear God. And the last thing I thought as I was driving away is, please don't follow me to my house. (laughs) Hell ain't got nothing on the church of the resurrected Christ. If the cross couldn't defeat Jesus, if the tomb couldn't hold him, then the gates of hell are never going to stand against the pressure that soldiers of the crucified, resurrected, and returning king bring against it. The only reason I think that a church proves to be impotent against the gates of hell is when its members become too comfortable, too fearful, too selfish, or too fat on the Christian life to leave the sheep pen to rescue other souls from the teas of wolves. That's what I'm thinking. So we're built, brothers and sisters, we're built to assault the gates of hell. I wasn't built by God to every year for 10 years come around to a certain season every year where I'm crying and whining and fearful and insecure and wondering if I should quit. And I'm done with that. I wasn't built for that. I refuse to go back there again. Now, that kind of assault um, on the gates of hell, I think it happens every time we participate. Participate in the normal activities, right? Worship, prayer, preaching, baptism, Lord's Supper, fellowship as a gathered church. But assaulting the gates of hell also happens, and I think especially happens when we, each of us, all of us, unreservedly pray with and and share with others the message of the gospel. Also, when we ask others in our platoon, you might say, to pray for the same. I just want to ask you, who's your one? That's something the SBC has done really good as a slogan. Who's your one person, at least, who doesn't know Jesus that you're praying for? Share that name with other brothers and sisters that you might pray for that. If you're not praying for that, how seriously do you take that? You only have one life to live, right? C.T. Studd said. And the reality is, so do the lost people in our lives. They only got one life to live, too. Somebody said, if you really believed this whole hell and heaven thing, you'd probably crawl across broken glass to see the gospel save people. And it's a statement that I love. You better be about the business of sharing the gospel often. That's how we assault the gates of hell. Again, one of the most practical ways I think that I know to be obedient to God in this area is to make a list of the lost people that you know. Uh, pray for them daily. Ask other believers to pray for them. Commit to praying with them in person when you see them. Learn how to share the message of the gospel with them. I'm not talking about some goofy little track that has these four steps to salvation where you're like, hey, here's the four steps, let me pray for you, boom, I'm done, pat myself on the back, I handed out five tracks today type of thing, and maybe somebody got saved, or I just pressured them into following Jesus. But more like you become a walking track. 
You so engross yourself in abiding in the presence of Jesus, in the message of the gospel, that the only thing that comes out of you is the message of the gospel. Right? And you say, well, I don't know that I have time to abide in Christ that way. And there'll be lots of time in hell. There'll be lots of time there. Probably be good for you and I to choose how we're going to use our time on this side of that gate. And I want to use this time to abide in the presence of my Savior so that I might share Him with others. You can't share what you don't have. You can't give what you don't have. If I don't have money in the bank, I can't give it to you. If I don't have the presence of Jesus in my life, I can't give you the presence of Jesus. I can give you a track. <coughs> By God's grace, He uses tracks to save people, so please don't hear me wrong. I just want to see you become that walking track that you might assault the gates of hell. Third, we're commissioned to make disciples, right? Matthew 28. We're not commissioned by the Lord Jesus on the day that we got saved to simply occupy a seat in a church building on Sunday mornings, although we should be there too. We just weren't simply saved for only that. We certainly weren't saved to occupy a seat in a church building on Sunday mornings while living like heathens between Sundays. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not about a Sunday morning social event, which we have often turned that into. Sunday mornings are all about equipping and sending a transformed family, I believe, of disciples who want to be missionaries in this community to make other disciples between those Sundays. That's what this is about. How do you do that? If you're a farmer, how do you do that, right? If you work at Verizon, how do you do that? If you work at a gas station, how do you do that? How do you do that when you're retired? How do you do that when you're in the mental health field? How do you do that when you're a college student or a high school student who's about to uh, graduate? How do you do that when you drive a truck? How do you do that if you're a high school or middle school teacher or an elementary teacher? How do you make disciples? in between Sundays. See, true disciples, I think, of Jesus, who, once again, you remember Jesus? He died horrifically on a cross to rescue you and I from the flames of hell, right? He left the tomb empty three days later so that we then, those same sinners who now became saints, can now walk in that victory over Satan, sin, and death, and now get to look forward eagerly to the promise of heaven and if you and I have the promise of heaven, wouldn't we want to share that same promise of the future with others? So those true disciples all throughout the scriptures then were about the business of making other disciples who made other disciples. Matthew 28 is the key place for that. It's his final words, Jesus' final words to his disciples after the resurrection, before the ascension. And what does he do? He explains that he alone, catch this, he alone possesses all authority. All authority on heaven and on earth. In the, in, the, in the entire universe, he has all the authority. And he's the one who is sending disciples to make more disciples in the name of the triune God. And he says that his true disciples will baptize new believers. Can I just ask you a question? When was the last time you as a Christian led somebody to Jesus? It's not just my job. 
Oftentimes we think, well, we got some paid staff. That's their job to go do that stuff. No, our job is to equip, challenge, say this is what you should be doing. This is how you do it, right? When was the last time you led somebody to Jesus? Don't leave that for others to do. You, you rob yourself of the joy. Rob yourself of the joy of spending years chasing down a lost person. Years investing and calling and wooing and explaining. Don't rob yourself of the joy of that. Don't rob the kingdom of the joy of that. We're to make new disciples, baptize them. Once you baptize them, what are you supposed to do? Train them. You're supposed to train new disciples, new believers, to obey all the words that Jesus commanded them. Once again, let me ask you this question. Not just who was the last person you led to Jesus, but let me just ask you, who are you sitting down with and sharing the Bible with? Who are you sitting down with? The Bible open, you're training someone to listen to the words of the Bible and to obey them. Who is that for you? Because that's the Great Commission. I love Jesus' final words in that commission because they're a promise. What's the promise? The promise is, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So you got this big challenge, right? Oh, I got to go share the gospel with people. I got I to figure out who I want to start leading to Jesus, right? I got some people, I got to start sitting down with them face to face, one-on-one in groups and start opening the Bible and reading the Bible with them and teaching them what Jesus says. You know what that means? I got to figure out what Jesus says. <laughs> I can't just rely on Sundays and our pastors to preach. I'm going to have to feed myself, right? Yeah, I'm not just sitting in a high chair anymore, getting fed. I'm feeding myself. And now I'm going to move past that stage, and I'm going to become a parent. And I'm going to start feeding somebody else. That takes a lot of guts, doesn't it? It's pretty scary. I know it. I get it. Just because I get up on your own on a Sunday morning doesn't mean I don't feel the fear of opening God's word in front of me. What if I get it wrong? What if I don't understand it? How stupid am I going to look, right? You get all those types of fears and things that set in. That's Satan getting you to detour from what God has called you to do. His promise is, I'll be with you. Always. And say sometimes. And say, I'll be with you later after you've read enough theology books. And say, I'll be with you when you get past your fear. So I'll be with you always. And even if you get it wrong while you're preaching or teaching to somebody or sitting down with them across the table and sharing the gospel, who cares? Right? Jesus will straighten that out, and he'll straighten you out. That's Matthew 28. Now, if you cross-reference Jesus' words in Matthew 28, and I want to be done here in just a few minutes. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm almost there. If you cross-reference that commission in Matthew 28 with the other uh, four instances of this commission. Now that's uh, Mark 16, that's Luke 19, that's John 20, and that's Acts chapter 1. I'll say it one more time for somebody who's writing it down. Mark 16, Luke 19, uh, 9 and 10, uh, it's the story of Zacchaeus. John 20 and Acts 1, 8. Those are the other instances of this great commission. And when you read those alongside this, you get a really full picture of what it means to be commissioned to make disciples. And we don't have time to review all those, but I do want to give you a quick summary. When you read all five great commission passages, you get this picture painted of what it means to be commissioned to make disciples, right? And if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, then what you're saying is, I am a soldier who has been commissioned by the unmatchable, unquestionable authority of the crucified, risen, and returning king. 
In that moment, you now have marching orders to proclaim the gospel everywhere. Somebody once said, and I think it was Mueller who said, um, you can go ahead and use your words, I'll use my actions. That is the stupidest statement on the face of the planet. Number one, because the gospel was meant to be proclaimed with words. And if it's not going to be proclaimed anymore, and it was never meant to be proclaimed, then why do you have a whole book full of words? Here's the other issue. Mueller didn't actually say what everybody says he said. Go find the context and read the entire context and you'll find out. He's actually arguing for both. And if I remember right, I think he's actually arguing that if your actions don't match your words, you're stupid. <laughs> I didn't know how else to say it. <laughs> I think that's what he's arguing for, is to get both to match. It doesn't give you a right not to use your words. But your actions matter too. At the end of the day, we are to proclaim the gospel everywhere we go. Lead other lost souls in the kingdom. We're to be about the business of actively seeking and saving those who are lost, just like Jesus did in Luke chapter 19 with Zacchaeus. See, at the moment of salvation, what God did is he gave you and I the Holy Spirit. If you're here and you're following Jesus, if you're not following Jesus, all this sounds pretty crazy, right? At the moment of salvation, when you trust in Jesus, you recognize you are a rotten sinner, just like everybody else. And that you are headed towards a place called hell, eternal separation from a good father. And yet he has provided a way of escape from that in the work of Jesus at the cross. You trust in that moment. What happens is God gives you his very own spirit. He comes and takes up residence inside of you. You become his home. And from that point forward, as you continue to submit and surrender to him, he then uses you to reach others. He makes you into his witness, according to Acts 1.8. A witness is somebody who says, I saw, I experienced, I learned God, the gospel. And that person then is enabled by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. The word is dunamis. You know what it means, dunamis? It means dynamite. And I just ask you, how many dynamite Christians do we know of other than the ones that we see on TV? And most of us in this room would be like, I don't feel too dynamic, very much like dynamite. And I just admitted to you a little while ago that I have my seasons throughout the year where I don't feel like dynamite either. And what I'm saying is I'm done with that. Right? And for you is that God would infuse you with his spirit and make you like a stick of dynamite where the gospel would be proclaimed. And according to Acts 1.8, that's done in your own backyard. That's done in the hardest and scariest of places of relationship that you have. It's done to the ends of the earth. That's the biblical mandate. That's the gospel commission to make disciples just like little made men in the Italian mob throughout the kingdom. It's no easy task. It's not for the faint of heart, for sure. It's for those with a spirit-filled heart. That's what it's for. This mandate is for those of you who have the spirit of God living inside of you. And that disciple-making labor happens every time you and I proclaim the gospel. Every time we teach the word in one-on-one -on -one settings, small groups, large groups, we've been commissioned to make disciples within a yard of hell. Conclusion. In conclusion, I note a couple of more things that I read in some other books this last week. Came across this quote. Says this: "says When Jesus said, go and preach, in the book of Acts, uh, what you find in the book of Acts is disciples obeying that command." Um, and all throughout the rest of the Bible, that's what you find, is disciples obeying that command. Go, preach the gospel. And without the going and preaching of the gospel, the Christian life 
will be reduced to this. Hear this. Unfettered activism. It means that you trade the gospel for something that the gospel seems to be. Right? So you trade the preaching of the gospel for some kind of activism. Um, There's lots of good things you and I can get involved in. Right? Motivated by the gospel, for sure. But what can inevitably and easily happen is the gospel gets left behind and now all this other stuff becomes the gospel. Some social cause, political cause. Again, get involved in those things. Don't lose your love for the first and primary thing, which is the gospel. He says that if we, this author says that if we do not obey this command to go and preach the gospel, then everything we will do in our life will be unfettered or unrestricted activism. Finally, last statement. says, God's evangelism method is mankind. His plan is his people. His strategy is you and I. We're the only Jesus the world will ever see, and making a difference is up to you and me. If we don't do it, it won't get done. And something Charles Spurgeon said is this, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I also love Spurgeon. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. It is all of this that this church was founded on from the early days until now. These are the reasons why I believe with every fiber of my being that God has commissioned us to run a rescue mission within the yard of hell. And to do so, we've got to wrestle with the fact that we've been called, commissioned to fish for men and women, commissioned to assault the gates of hell, and commissioned to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples of the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the work that you have done in and through this church over the years. And I pray, God, that you would use this message today to challenge, um, to wake up, um, to call out of comfort, to call us into your mission for our lives. I pray, God, that you would use this message um, to transform and to change our thinking and our behavior and our desires when it comes to what it means to be part of the church family. We pray, God, that you would renew and refresh and strengthen us. Speak to us in our closing moments. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.